Salvation is now offered to all nations. I see it, Paul. To the whole of the Gentiles. I see your ministry, Paul. So thus, as one might reason, God's program has moved on beyond Israel. That kind of thinking dominated the Middle Ages, by the way. It continues to be the presupposition of one of the biggest spiritual movements in the world, the Roman Catholic Church. That's their presupposition. One of my sons, not too long ago, was talking to a trained Roman Catholic priest, studied at the Vatican. And he said to them, as they were talking about Israel and their future, he said to them, you know what, I haven't even given thought to the fact that Israel might have a future. This is a Roman Catholic trained priest. That's not all. Many modern Protestants have also believed that. And you may know some that Israel's replaced. Which we would want to denounce about so-called replacement theology. It is we consider such God-forsaken Israel thinking, consider this, Israel is still around and still a people. Not only in spite of war and conflict, but listen, think with me, but in spite of repeated, not just once, repeated genocide attempts. Have you ever thought about that? From Haman to Hitler to Hamas, every single one says what? We want to wipe the Jews off the face of the planet. Yet has Israel endured? Yes, they have. Israel remains. One theologian once famously aptly said this, the enduring apologetic for the existence of God is the enduring existence of Israel. So true, isn't it? They shouldn't be here. They are. Indeed, their persistence as a people is nothing short of supernatural. Beloved, or might I say as I look out at you Gentiles, you Gentiles, that is who we are. Gentiles, listen, Israel's enduring existence especially in the current conflict in the Middle East, should cause us to pause and consider how we look at Israel these days, shouldn't it? It should give us pause. Every Christian should pause with what's going on. Listen, initial global sympathy for Israel, and it was there, we admit that, is already giving away to a tide turn. And I know you've noticed that, right? And I'm not just talking about sketchy reports about a hospital bombing. I mean, the images we're seeing worldwide, listen with me, are not Star of David flags, are they? It's a particular flag you're seeing over and over and over again. Now, we need to be slow and careful here. This is not, let me be clear on this this morning, this is not Israel can do no wrong thinking. It's not what this is. So please don't leave saying that. That's not what this is at all. Not only, hear this, not only is all manner of ungodliness coursing and growing through that nation. Listen, Israel is not just a champion of all things modern and technology. We will say it here, in some senses, they're a champion of all things ungodly right now. That flow through the streets of the holy city. As mentioned already, they're a nation in rebellion a nation rejecting their king. They are theologically, let's set our minds right this morning, they are Israel, theologically, a nation under judgment and currently in exile by God's hand. 
However, attacked, surrounded, oppressed, and in judgment they remain. That plight is temporary. Again, I addressed that last week. Relief is coming for Israel. Israel remains God's chosen people. Nothing can ever change that. That's who Israel is. God chose them, the least of all peoples, to be his people. And as such, they will remain. And and to be chosen by God means to never be forsaken by God, ever. That's what it means to be chosen by God. It means he will never leave you or forsake you. And what did we just learn in chapter 8? That nothing can separate the chosen, God's people, from God's love. Not just from God's love, but God's love in who? The one who secured it. Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's what's missing right now, by the way. Israel, corporately, nationally, remains in widespread rejection of Christ Jesus, their Messiah. However, the day is coming when they will turn and look on him whom they have pierced, Zechariah 12, 10. So while our concern for Israel does not cause us to be blind to their ungodly conduct, we also must take heart that as they endure evil, divine relief is coming. And Israel's relief and repentance, God will grant them repentance, is what Paul wants to touch on and focus on here. Let's, in fact, preview comments. Let's look at some bookends. We read chapter 9. Turn to chapter 11 for a moment. Let's frame this section and see what Paul is doing here. He turns to Israel now in chapter 9, but at the end of chapter 11, just pick it up in verse 25, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight. What of the program, Paul? I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. He's talking to the Gentiles here. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, and then he dips into the Old Testament with this promise, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's Isaiah 59 there. And then down to 29, verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Do you see, this is the point that Paul is making here. The gifts and calling of God are indeed irrevocable. And the apostle's point is this. The Gentile program right now does not take away from Israel's program originally or finally. And we need to be clear on this, especially with what's going on in the Middle East. Whatever Israel's enduring, and however grand us Gentiles, Christians, right, are benefiting, right, from this program right now, the fact that the gospel is going to the Gentiles for the purpose of spurning the Jews to repent, whatever we can say about these things, we never lose sight of the fact. The program of Israel is not yet complete. It's not done. He hasn't cast them aside. It's not yet complete. So while God's people might be unfaithful, God himself is not. So our wrestling here then, Westmount, is that as humans, we have no category for faithfulness. Is that not true? We don't have a category for faithfulness. If we're being honest with our hearts, we are so naturally, habitually, and regularly unfaithful, aren't we? That's who we are. We're an unfaithful people. We don't have a grid in which to think this through at times. But listen, God does because it's who he is. 
Yahweh's not done with Israel then, their future is certain. And God's enduring faithfulness, God's word is not failing. Listen, is the point of chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. In fact, if you were just to look at it and scan this section, look at chapters 9, 10, and 11. These are just things that are fascinating that prove a point. Did you know that almost a third of the entirety of Paul's references to the Old Testament happened in these three chapters? It's pretty significant, isn't it? That's in the whole corpus of Paul's writings. Almost one-third right here in these three chapters. You say, wow, he's got Old Testament on his mind. Yes, he does. And the failure or success of the Old Testament is exactly what's on his mind. Romans 9, verse 6. In other words, the Old Testament is not just a support for Israel's future. Listen, beloved, it's the basis of it. The Old Testament is the basis of Israel's future. Brethren, let's not miss that, then, as we embark this morning on these chapters. The central issue of chapters 9 to 11 is not predestination or a proof text for the Reformers or even as a treatise on the sovereignty of God. Some of that is here, of course, and it's helpful for those things, but that's not the point. The theme in chapters 9, 10, 11 is this. Look at verse 6 of Romans 9. This is the point. It is not as though the word of God has failed. There it is. On the apostle's mind now is God's faithfulness to his promise and to his people. As the apostle to the Gentiles, that's what Paul is, the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul was very likely critiqued, right, for being anti-Jewish. This comes through in so much, his writing, putting his apostleship on defense and so on. But note here, framing this section, his personal identification with his brothers. Let's do one final flyover before we dip into this section. Romans 9, 1 again. Listen to the personal, the, the personal identification and anguish with Israel. Romans 9, 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Israel, is that they may be saved. Chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, as God rejected his people, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. See that? Paul's pain at Israel's unfaithfulness is woven through this section. Yet what we'll see also, and particularly when we hit the crescendo at the end of chapter 11, will be praise to Israel's faithful God. All here in 9-11, so let's go. Number one, the pain from unfaithfulness. The pain from unfaithfulness. See this in the first three verses. We begin this important section in chapter 9, verse 1 again. Let me read it again. Verse 1 of ninth chapter. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. You know what is most noteworthy as you look at that verse in the opening verse? is that Paul doesn't say this. What does he not say? He doesn't say, Romans, believe me, I have great sorrow and anguish in my heart for Israel. Does he? Does he say that? No. Today you hear that. How many ample believe me's do people need to put on something so that people will listen? Believe me, believe me. In fact, so often, simply emotional, knee-jerk, ungrounded platitudes. Unbridled emotionalism today. Oh, Israel, you heard it two weeks ago. Oh, Israel. Yesterday's Ukrainian flags replaced by stars of David for a time. And of course, 
Those flags were replaced by what? Other flags. And even someone showed me an image this week. Someone in all of the global hoopla putting up Italian flags as a mistake. Incredible. It just gives you the thoughtlessness to throw up a flag. Kind of looks the same because it's all emotion. But of course, all of that's fading now, right? The point is how fickle emotion can be. And by the way, as a side note, how thoughtless activism can be at times. But see here, Paul presents his sorrow and unceasing anguish objectively, spiritually objectively. How? Back to verse 1. I'm speaking the truth, period. No, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. It may be my emotions, the apostle says. It may be my body, Paul says. It may be my ethnicity in this, Paul says. But first and foremost, I'm crying out. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, out of my union with Christ. It is indeed union with Christ through which Paul speaks of his agony for Israel. And this is just so important for any that would want to replace Israel. It's out of that union for Christ, his anguish is coming out for Israel. It is Christ in Paul that has a word, three chapters full, of the future of Israel. In other words, this is not only no passing emotional whim, but this is divine truth. This is truth in Christ, Paul says. Thus, verse 1, he's not lying because Christ cannot lie, can he? More, with Christ in him and as Christ chose an instrument to the Gentiles, Acts 9, verse 15, Paul says his conscience bears him witness. See, in verse 1, in the Holy Spirit. Just so important. Many would want to claim conscience on their own. It's a dangerous game unless a conscience is infused by the Holy Spirit. See, Paul recognized that. You can feel very clear about your conscience, right? And it's infused wrongly. See, two weeks ago. Your conscience needs to be infused by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's getting at here. And that's quite, look at that in verse 1. What a legal defense that is. Two members of the Godhead, Paul claims. Isn't that incredible? And what's on the stand here? It is this again, verse 6. The word of God is on the stand. The promises of God is on the stand. And verse 6, has God's word to Israel failed? Again, that's the question here as Paul begins to lay out the case that it hasn't failed. He begins with this internal testimony of his union with Christ and his appointment and delivery of the inspired words of the Holy Spirit. With Christ and the Holy Spirit is my witness, Paul says, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. After the testimony, after the witnesses, now this is what he presents. Beloved, what Paul is testifying to here, what he's describing is the pain from unfaithfulness. This is the pain resulting from his nation's unbelief. The apostle understood this. The great sorrow, Paul calls it, of knowing that his countrymen remain blind. Painful. The unceasing anguish, Paul says, of seeing the ongoing results of that rebellion. I mean, this was 2,000 years ago. And this pain that the apostle feels is nothing new. Paul, of course, is in company But those that have gone before him, like the prophet Jeremiah, consider this from Jeremiah 4, 19 to 22 again, as the prophet describes his anguish over Judah's plight. He says this, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain, says Jeremiah. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet 
The alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste. My curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? Jeremiah, what has you so bent up? Verse 22. For my people are foolish. This is now God speaking directly through him. My people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good, they know not. Paul identifies with Jeremiah. Same thing in the prophet Daniel, by the way. Daniel 9, verses 3 to 6. Daniel's prayer coming out of his lament for his countrymen. What about the prophet, Jesus Christ? Do you remember in Matthew 23, 37 to 39, his lament was for who? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, these people. Paul here in line with the sent ones of God and God himself before him. This is excruciating lament for the ongoing fallen sinful state of God's people. This is lament in the wake of widespread corporate national unbelief. And listen, beloved, mark this. Unbelief is always painful. Can we be clear on that this morning? Unbelief, you know it in your own testimonies, is always painful, isn't it? Unbelief always is what at its heart is. This is what makes it painful. Unbelief is a resistance to the truth. In fact, sometimes we have to work very hard at our unbelief to suppress truth, don't we? That's not only painful, it's hard work. Logically, how can living against truth be pleasant? And what makes this unbelief even more painful for Paul here is the fact that as the unfaithfulness remains for Israel, the very character of God and his word is now being questioned, is on the stand. That's the pain that Paul is feeling, the pain from unfaithfulness. Paul recognizes that the future of Israel is not just a side theological debate. We don't relegate it to such in our modern times. It's not just a side debate. The future salvation of Israel is the vehicle on which the greater salvation program for all nation rides. Israel's future is the nation's future, and we'll see this in chapter 11, as Paul will show. That is why unfaithfulness and unbelief are so painful. In our day, as in Paul's day, it's like a diabolical flare that casts trust and certainty and hope away from the promises of God. And that is why, beloved, it should not just be Paul's heart in sorrow and anguish here. Christian, what of your heart this morning? As enemies surround Israel right now, what of unbelief surrounding you? Does your heart ache to return, as we'll see Paul do repeatedly to God's word? Or to the next news item? Do you seek for comfort, the refuge of God's unfailing word and his enduring promises? Do you understand that the future salvation for the nation of Israel is directly tied to the future salvation, the remnant grafted in among the Gentiles? In Christ, like you, like me, Paul does. And to demonstrate that, he does. Paul punctuates it with this, verse 3. For I could wish, look at this. For I could wish 
that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Obviously, a massive statement like that and its implications warrants a pause, does it not? That's a major thing. I just take it in for a moment, what Paul is saying there. So let's do that. Let's take it in and be clear on what Paul is saying and why he says it. Number one, who is Paul referring to? Look at it. He says, my brothers. Elsewhere in Romans, Paul will use brothers, and he's referring to Christians. Chapter 1, verse 13. We saw that in chapter 8, verse 12. Here, though, Paul, what he's going to do, he's going to narrow that. He's going to clarify. Grammatically, that's why you see that. He's got the comma, my brothers, comma, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That is here who I'm referring to as brothers. This is ethnic. And who would that be? Israel. He turns. He's got Israel. They are the ones, as Paul is saying now in view. Secondly, Paul says, for their sake, for Israel's sake, he could wish that he were what? Accursed. You see that? The word here is anathema. Some of you know that word, anathema. And you say, that's a strong word. And, and, and yes, it is. Anathema means to be set apart, devoted to utter destruction, eternally damned, separated from God. That's it. Paul likely has in mind here, by the way, the penalty in Deuteronomy 13.10. You might know that. The penalty, remember, for the false prophet who attempts to lure an Israelite away from the worship of the true God. And that was the penalty there. Paul says then, in light of that, remember, likely being accused. Remember, this is where it's helpful tonight. Likely being accused. Oh, you, Paul, turning from Israel, looking beyond Israel. You're so pro-Gentile. Everything's Gentile, Paul. This is, in a way, Paul, to say this. Listen, you think I'm luring people away from God's true worship through Israel? Is that what you think? Remember John 4, what Jesus said? You think I'm straying from that? Well, if that was the case, then I would wish myself accursed, legally damned, if that's the case, according to the law of God. Paul's point, then, is that if that was his intent in coming to the Gentiles, only to move the program off Israel and beyond Israel, listen to what Paul says, if that was my point, then I deserve to be cut off. That's what Paul is saying. You look at that and consider with me, Westmount, this is serious. It always is with God, of course, but this needs special mention. How many things in your life, when you think of the character of God, would you say this to? How many things would you say in your life right now, I would rather be cut off from Christ for? How many things would you say that for? More. How many things can you have the guarantee that that wouldn't happen? That's how, you, how sure you are of your God. And his program. That's, that's what's going on here. Listen, Paul cannot be cut off from Christ, can he? What's exhibit A? He just taught that in chapter 8, didn't he? Verse 38 and 39. This is the point as he read it in context. However, grammatically, Paul writes this in such a way as if to say, if I could entertain such a possibility, if one even existed, right, of being cut off, I would. One final comment here. This As you see here in Paul's expression, this which you see, beloved, is the heartbeat of substitution. You see that? This is substitution. We rightly say penal substitution. And you say, what's that? That doctrine is one in place of a group, but more one penalized 
for the sake of all. That's what this doctrine is, and it's a precious, important doctrine. And saying this here, Paul stands again, like he did with Jeremiah and Daniel, in a line. In a line of God-fearers that understood this. When God and the very nature of God's program is at stake, there is one, right, who must be willing to take the place of all. Do you remember Exodus? Hopefully it's not gone from your mind, Westmount, yet. Exodus 32, 32. Do you remember in the wake of the golden calf? And God is burning wrath against Israel, ready to consume them. Who interceded for Israel? Moses. And he said this. But now, Yahweh, if you will forgive their sin. In other words, like Paul, right? If you will do this thing, if you'll forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. That's the heart of substitution, isn't it? I will take the place of the wall so that your character and your program is not violated. That's heavy-duty stuff, isn't it? That's the heartbeat of substitution. So important here. And we know this. Think of Isaiah, who was the substitute. Isaiah 53, listen to this. Verses 4 and 5. Surely he, this is speaking of Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Note the language. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for what? Our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That's penal substitution. He took what we deserve. What Paul is getting at here, when you think about the program and plan of God, is exactly the same heart. It's what Jesus said. You remember this in John 15, 13? He said, Beloved, greater love has no one than this, that someone what? Lay down his life for his friends. Said Jesus the night before he laid down his life for his friends. Such is the heart and love of Paul for his countrymen here. He would rather be cursed and cut off for the sake of the entire nation And more, we see, for the very character, nature, and plan of God. Again, beloved, we have to say this as we begin this study. This is love in our selfish age that gives us a difficulty to comprehend. We we, we really struggle with substitution, don't we? I was also reading this week, or a couple weeks ago now, maybe you did too, of Netta Epstein. You remember Netta Epstein? He threw himself on the grenade to save his fiancée. You probably read of that in the carnage. You've heard of soldiers that do that, not only just for one. They'll throw themselves on a grenade to save, right, their brothers in the platoon. And, and those are noble things. And every time you read one of those stories, you think this, don't you? Would I do that? Right? And you must. You're confronted with that reality. Do I have it in me? And it must arrest you that way. But much more than smothering a grenade, listen, let's anchor it. Divinely, Paul says he'd be cut off from Christ, and more than Paul, in that heartbeat, Christ experienced that cut-off sense, that substitution, when he bore God's very wrath as a substitution for us. Much more than a grenade. Christ took on the wrath of God for us, that substitution, so that, Christian, you won't. 
you will never be separated from the love of God because Christ bore the wrath deserved for you. Maybe as you consider Israel this week, this is what we need to meditate on more. You will never be separated from the love of God. The heart of Christ to take on penalty and punishment and pain for others. Brothers and sisters, is that your heart? Would you take another's place? And maybe sometimes it's not so glorious as jumping on a grenade. What about in the day-to-day? Or do you have an undetectable, subtle self-preservation that guides everything you do? You know what I'm talking about? The kind of like, once I'm doing okay, then I can do other things. Once I'm safe, then I can be okay. Once my stuff's all right, then I can go and do it. Are you guided by self-preservation or substitute? Christian, may it never be so. May it never be so. Such is not Christ. Such is not you, Christian. Such is not Paul here. Next, pain from unfaithfulness. Let's turn to this, the privilege from faithfulness. This is so good. Look at verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul sets a contrast here as he itemizes the many privileges of Israel. In other words, this is why Israel's unbelief is so tragic. This is what he's going to do here. Because of their privilege. You see the contrast? It's such a tragedy because they're so privileged. This is not people rejecting Jesus with nothing preparing or supporting their unbelief. This is rejection by a people of all people who should have been ready. This is unbelief in a people who had every reason to believe and receive their king. And this is privilege, by the way, given by God. It was Yahweh's prerogative to give it to them. A faithful God, yes, from him. The privilege from faithfulness. The list begins in verse 4. Look at it with this overall heading. They are Israelites. Israel, the name given by God. Israel, named. Right? Remember? Jacob, I will name you Israel. God chose and he named them ones that would strive with God. Israel, thus the covenant name of God's people versus, and this is important, the political name, which is Jew. This is Israel, the named Israel, not Jew. In Romans 1 to 8, recall Paul has been using the word Jew in that kind of sense, a social sense, maybe even a political sense. But now in chapter 9, 10, and 11, he turns to the name Israel. Because Israelites sum up all the privileges that Paul is about to mention. To be an Israelite is to know and to have received privilege from the hand of God. They are Israelites. Verse 4, and to them belong what? The adoption. Note and look at that word. It is adoption, singular, not plural, which refers to God's adoption of one, the nation of Israel, as his son, Exodus 4.22. This is not the adoption of individuals we see in the New Testament at Christian conversion. This is, as we'll see next week in verse 6, right? When we talk about that, not all individuals who descended from Israel belong to Israel, but the corporate entity, the nation of Israel, indeed, has received the adoption. This is God looking collectively on a nation, one nation, delivering them, adopting them, and placing them. What a privilege! 
This is the privilege Israel possesses of being adopted as God's nation. Next, the glory. This refers to, as it normally does in ancient Israel, the visible manifestation of God. His very presence dwelling among and amid his people. Again, back to Exodus. Do you remember and recall the glory? We tracked it in that book from the wilderness, chapter 16, verse 10. The glory on the mountain, chapter 24, verse 16. Remember the glory before Moses and his call to God, chapter 33, 21. And of course, the glory filling the tabernacle as the book ends, chapter 40, verse 34. Of course, glory present in Israel too in Solomon's temple, the privilege of presence. Next, the covenants. Speaking of Exodus, again, we're very familiar with these. From the old covenant on Sinai, with the covenant dimensions expressed through Abraham and David, right through, of course, to the new covenant given through Jesus. Listen, Israel's rejection of Christ does not nullify the reality of the new covenant. There remains a promise and future fulfillment for the nation of Israel. And right now, individual faithful Jews and Gentiles by faith, experience new covenant blessings. Think of the privilege nationally to be the first nation promised repentance. Have you thought of that? The first nation to say, you corporately as a nation will repent. And Christian, while we know that personally, Israel will be the first corporately. Next, the giving of the law. Look at it. Israel was the nation, right? The first nation to formally receive the law of God. Israel's privilege was receiving, here it is, relationship instructions. Have you thought about that? From God, the nation to say, this is how you're going to live in relationship with me. Listen to Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. Listen carefully. In those instructions, this is what Moses teaches them. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who then, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Stop for a moment there. That's the giving of the law, that they would live as God's people so that the nations would turn and say, yes, God is with them. The very same thing, by the way, the Gentiles are called to do now. They spurn Jews to, to jealousy, right? Wow, God must be with them. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it that the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? We could go on. See that? What great nation is there that has this privilege, the statutes and rules so righteous as this law? The possession of the very law of God. Well, Israel does. And they also have next the worship. This is the full ceremonial system that the law articulated. Not only in Exodus, in the Pentateuch. It's the entirety of worship, by the way. Think of Deuteronomy 6 both in temple and at home, the entirety of living in worship to Yahweh. Israel given the primary honor of worship instructions publicly and privately. And finally, in verse 4, the promises. Paul uses the plural here to grab all that was pledged, the promise of land, a kingdom, a king, forgiveness of sins, a new heart. When you think about the Old Testament promises. All that the covenants of promise, Ephesians 2.12, articulated. All of them are first Israel. See that privilege. Paul then concludes and caps this long list of privilege personally in verse 5. Look, he says, To them Israel belong the patriarchs. That, of course, is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not just Israel's fathers, but fathers in a line. We get to DNA here, which means according to the flesh. 
speaking of ethnicity, from that flesh, from that line, from whom, from the flesh of Israel, verse 5, look at this privilege, is the Christ. Incredible, isn't it? Israel, from you came the Christ. From Israel came the Messiah, born of woman in the line of Judah, a tribe of Israel. This Christ is from Israel. Consider that, brothers and sisters. This is Israel from whom came the Christ. Ruth 4, 1 Chronicles 1, Matthew 1. This is Israel and their great privilege from faithfulness. Paul concludes this opening defense with this declaration of who this is. Who is this Christ? Verse 5, the Christ, look at it, who is God over all, blessed forever. Paul says Israel's privilege is not just that Christ came from them. That would be one thing. But that God himself, the same Yahweh who is God over all in the Old Testament, is the same God over all of the New Testament. This is not just proof of Christ's deity. This is a statement of Christ's sovereignty. Think of Colossians 1 and others. This is Christ, the God over all, blessed forever. It's Messiah. It is who they cannot see right now. They're blind, Israel is to this. But that's who came from them, is Messiah, the God over all. And does anything, beloved, illustrate the gap between an unfaithful people and a faithful God more than the reality that from those unfaithful people came the faithful God himself? Does anything illustrate that gap more? And you must realize at this point as we close this morning, it is only blindness, sovereignly bestowed and sustained by God Almighty that prevents Israel from seeing their Messiah. That's it. In one sense, there's not anything in them that they're doing or not doing. It's sovereign blindness. They are in captivity. And what they're enduring now will not stop. No, their lonely exile will continue until their eyes are opened and they repent. And finally, Think with me, beloved, this day as you see the images around the world. Finally, the day is coming when they will corporately turn and not destroy surrounding enemies. They will turn and embrace the one promised to them. Nationally, they will do this. The consolation of Israel, the seed, the promised one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. As Israel suffers today, we can certainly pray for them and we must. But right now, let us sing for them. Can we do that? Let us sing for Israel and for us. Let us beg Emmanuel to come. Oh, God, with us come. I was telling my family I was tempted to read the entire lyrics of this song this week. This song is so good. Indeed, Christmas has begun for many of us, right? I want you this morning, beloved, can we do this in light of what's going on in the Middle East? Listen to every single word of this song. It is that rich and that good. We're going to rise in a moment and sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and beg him to come, his people saved. Father, we thank you for these truths of your word, that you are a faithful God amid an unfaithful people. O Lord, come. Deliver them. As you have delivered us individually, deliver that nation. We ask and beg and pray in Christ's name. Amen.